For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I wanted to uh, let you know something, which is that it's time. It is time to turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your uh, writing, maybe it's like a portfolio site for your, for your work or you're selling products, uh, any kind of website that you've been kicking around wanting to start, Squarespace is the easiest way, the best way to get it off the ground. They've got beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything. So you can make a gorgeous website all by yourself without knowing a lick of code. If you do get stuck, you won't. But if you do, Squarespace has 24-7 award-winning customer support there to help you along the way. Head to squarespace.com longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, Use the offer code LONGFORM to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thanks, Squarespace. One more thing you should do is uh, pick up The Mastermind. It's the new book by my co-host, Evan Ratliff. It's gotten all kinds of insanely rave reviews. The book is fantastic. I talked to Evan about it on the show a few weeks ago. If you have not yet picked up your copy of The Mastermind, go ahead and do that. Here's the program. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linskim here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, listeners. Hey, great to see you. Hey, nice to see you again. And uh, who'd you interview, Max? Uh, I interviewed Sloane Crosley, essayist. She's got a new book out. It's called Look Alive Out There. Uh, it's a collection of essays. It's her second or third. She's got a lot of essays out in the world. Um, and uh, second or third essay collection. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this is her second essay ever. She's coming on the show. <laughs> We're going to spend half the time on the first essay and half the time on the second essay. Uh, no, I was really excited to talk to her um, in part because before she was a published author, she worked for published authors. She was like a book publicist. I feel like we haven't had someone who's been on both sides of those uh, that line. So we talked about that. If uh, you are blurring the line between writing, promotion, publicity, marketing, <laughs> you can combine all of those talents into an email newsletter that uh, can bring you uh, new business, new contacts, and new fun. Uh, all with MailChimp. They make it easy. You don't even have to start paying until you hit a certain number of subscribers. So uh, there's really nothing stopping you um, from uh, getting that together today. Thanks to MailChimp. And who doesn't want a little new fun? Yeah, new fun. <laughs> <laughs> Sign up now. And now here's Max with Sloan Crosley. Well, hey, Sloan. Hi. Hi. Hello. 
Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming. I'm very excited to be here, legitimately. Uh, I am also legitimately excited to have you here. I um, I saw you give a talk or like a do a reading or um, I don't remember what it built was. Build a diorama. <laughs> build a diorama. I saw you build a diorama on stage years ago. I think like even like right when we started the podcast which is many years ago now. And I had this thought that was like, man, what a thing if the podcast could ever get to a place where someone like that would come on. Oh, wow. It, it, I, I did mean, not see that story going to this incredibly flattering at, lily pad. That, that is where you. Went. Well, you were, the diorama was incredible. <laughs> the diorama. I'd build a diorama on stage, mix it up. I just yeah. came off book tour. It might be a new thing to do. Change it up. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I feel in, in, my, in my version of events, this is like a long time coming, so I'm very happy you're here. This is a thrill. I have uh, so many things I want to talk to you about. Uh, most of them, I feel like, uh, should be about writing because that's what the show is about. But... This is a rare opportunity on the long form podcast to talk to someone who understands um, book publicity. Yes. Because book publicity is like a, a bit of a mysterious art, mm. I would say, on the program. I would agree with you. On the program. Well, we talk to people a lot who have books coming out. Right. And there's a lot of like existential fear right. about whether or not your book is going to work. And then there are these people the publicists who seem it seems as though their job is to make the book work yeah but no one knows how, how to like hold your <laughs> ego and the fate of your career in this sort of light yeah they're just grasp they're, they're like a presence in these conversations <laughs> but we never had one here <laughs> and see how you started there i, was, I did i i, I, I want to talk to you about it for oh a second. good i mean and quite proudly i started there i really loved it how did you um how did you get into it well, uh, my first job out of college was for a literary agent, and actually, let me back it up a bit. All my internships were for magazines. You know, when I was a baby, I interned for like um, the New Yorker, um, a magazine called Post, which everyone always thinks is the New York Post, but it's in fact a uh, trade magazine about post-production and special effects. Oh, I thought it was going to be like a um, yeah. mail-carrying no, trade application. I, I get really excited. I wish. <laughs> Uh, but I did it at the same time that I interned, and this is very much dating myself, but it is the summer it folded. But uh, I interned for Mirabella at the same time, so okay. it was a very different crowd, as you might imagine, uh, writing about the special effects for the new Star Wars movie and Mirabella. Yeah. Um, but I like the speed of those magazines, but I found them, and now that I think they've both gone the way of the dodo, I can say a little vacuous. <laughs> And so I wanted something a little more heady, and I'd always written, you know, and I was sort of fancying myself a, a secret writer, and I was a big reader and an English major and all those things that are generally requisite. What, is, wait, what does secret writer mean? Secret writer means writing, writing short stories, not really showing them to anybody. I guess that's what secret writer means. Okay. But I had, uh, so I had built up this sort of resume for magazines, but then my first job was in books. And that was a little too slow, I think, for me as a literary agent. And so I found myself this sort of perfect sweet spot for a really long time. I mean, I stayed in book publicity for like 10 years. That was sort of the most social high-speed end of this very slow, awkward machine <laughs> that is book publishing. And it was sort of outward-facing. So I was constantly dealing with the media and feeling, you know, that sort of Lorax-y kind of role for the books. And, and that's how I got into it. When did you become not a secret writer? Like, uh, when when did you uh, tell people that you were also one? And how did that work with the job you were doing? 
you know, it's funny because I think I might have misspoken a little bit when I said secret because it sounds like this intentional masking. Did, it was more just, just like, demoted. <laughs> like unsuccessful. Just unsuccessful. <laughs> exactly. There's so much in life that everybody thinks is, you know, they want to know your trajectory. That's why people do shows like this. And you, you feel like half a fraud answering the question because you're like, well, I would definitely not do what I did. <laughs> but have at it if you'd like to, you know, work in book publicity on the off chance that one day you publish a book. It's not a recommended route. But um, yeah, but, I th- but it worked. Well, it worked. But it worked the way having a day job while you're trying to do something creative works, where you're not consistently stressed about money and health insurance. So it's very unglamorous in the way it worked. It's not like Toni Morrison turned around one day and said, you know, this press release, <laughs> there's something to it. <laughs> no one said this to me. No, <laughs> so, that never happened. No. <laughs> but did it make you a better writer? Like being around that? It replaced, I think, something. And, you know, I did not think I was going to trash my parents this early into the episode. But um, they were very um, supportive of me being creative and supportive of my writing. Same thing with my sister and their creative people themselves. But it wasn't necessarily a viable vocation. You know, they didn't necessarily send me to school for it. Mm-hmm. But I've heard tell of other authors like Ann Patchett talks about growing up in her house. You know, her mother's a writer and a writer was a perfectly viable profession. And that's the same thing with like all the Minot kids. And, you know, I imagine like Chip McGrath, Ben McGrath, like there are all these sort of families that it's a natural profession. And I think that working in book publicity kind of gave me a late stage version of that because every book I saw was published. I mean, I'm not working in editorial where you're, you know, still weeding out what's possible and you're still dealing with submissions everything i read was on its way to be bound right so it's not that you think you can write as well as these people it just it starts to occur to you that what you're doing can eventually go to this place so so you're going through that process and then like i mean just help me understand a little bit because i think like part of why i was interested in it is that it feels like a little cinematic to me you know it's like secret struggling yeah. writer on the one hand and then dealing with like America's foremost authors on the other and then at some point these things like converge and I, I'm just interested in that experience for you yeah that I mean you can also just be like that, that is very corny no it's not corny it's but the problem is is that it's such a it's like an overlaid narrative on my life that it's like sometimes hard to tell the difference between what happened and what people are so used to this sort of local girl makes good idea of yeah, me. Yeah, well, like, tell me that, that, uh, yeah, basically, that it was bullshit. Well, yeah, no, it's not bullshit. It's just that it's um, it's like when you look at somebody and you say, oh, you know, you got a haircut, and they're like, well, yeah, I guess a while ago. But to you, it looks dramatic. <laughs> to me, I've been cutting my hair for years. <laughs> um, but I wrote book and music reviews for uh, Black Book and all these different tiny publications. Some of them, I think, are uncredited. I don't even know if they have my name on them. Um, or, like, guidebooks and stuff like that. And then... The sort of story or like the the sort of watered down lore in a teapot <laughs> is that I was moving apartments in New York. I was 24, 25, and I locked myself out of the first apartment while moving. I mean, moving is already very stressful. And I did that thing where you shut the door and you go to touch the doorknob and you just know with every fiber in your being that it's not going to turn, you know. And so I had to pay a locksmith an exorbitant fee uh, and then move just a few blocks north went to throw out the first cardboard box and shut the door and realized that, lo and behold, I had done it again. 
um, which is not really giving me not, not a lot of points in my favor here in terms of common sense. Um, but then I called the same locksmith and he came and I had a doormat at the time that said deja vu frontwards and backwards. And he pointed with his pen and he said, that's a funny doormat. And it was this thing where I just wrote it up as sort of an essay um, with a, a little bit of a law and order play-by-play -play <laughs> overlay of the timestamps. Um, I sent it to some friends, including Ed Park, who had worked at The Village Voice. And he said, you know, if you clean this up and you spell check it, see what that might be like, I'll publish it. And then I started writing for The Voice. And I'm lucky in the fact that I worked for a department of people that were incredibly supportive at Vintage. And I'm not the only one. This is the other really weird thing, actually, is that, you know, when we talk about secret authorship, it's a lot of times it's the editorial department that has some sort of manuscript underneath the desk. But that department at Vintage within a, I think, three-year span was me, a fellow named Ethan Rutherford, who wrote several books of short stories as well as has been in Best American. Uh, Paul Yoon, same thing. Um, Hanya Yanagahara, who wrote A Little Life. A guy named Martin Wilson, who wrote a YA book. This is a six, like seven person department. <laughs> if you weren't a writer, I always think about this on a side note about like the three people in that infamous class at Bennington that had Freddie Snellis and Lethem and Donna Tart And like, I always imagine some mediocre kid rolling out of bed being like why do i suck <laughs> yeah just like that that writing workshop class is exactly. just absolutely it's just brutal ridiculous. <laughs> it sounds awful but so yeah it was like pretty common and so i had support internally as long as i was still you know being a functional advocate for the authors and, right. I, and I was and Were then i at started at uh, publicity yeah i was really good at it yeah i really loved it i loved it so much and it's weird because it's a thing that no one loves because <laughs> it's thankless what does being good at it look like? Being good at it is, I would say, 70% creativity and 30% hyper-organization. And I wasn't great at that 30% part. But I was really good at the 70% part. I'd get really excited about the books. Wait, sorry, I didn't, I didn't totally... Like, I, I assume that all book publicists are excited about the books. I mean, is that is that like is that like saying like everyone who works in construction is like excited about buildings? Yeah, there's there's no Santa. Also, we pay for front of the store placement. That, that was like a no Santa thing for me when I found out that um, that book publishing houses bought placement for their books in the front of bookstores. Yeah. So, uh, no, but why? You like you were just saying like I got excited, but I assume some people do. I just want to know literally like um, how? how do you be good at that? I mean, there's a certain amount of alchemy to it that's hard to define, um, where things just have to go right, and it's really hard to turn them around if they go wrong. Um, and some of that just has to do with um, what the public wants in, in well, the book. I think that's like, if I'm being a little bit more honest about what I'm asking, my sense is that this stuff is like a little bit of a crapshoot. Yeah, but I think that you now, or at least I know as an author, so now I've published four books. Um, five, if you count one, I wrote under a pseudonym. But um, wait, what was that? I didn't find that one. I read, I read all the rest of them. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, but the thing is, what's funny is, um, so I've now published four books, and I've, so I've been on eight book tours total. And it, you can tell when someone's trying hard and really doing the best possible job that they can, and wants to work with you, and is excited with you. And then if things don't happen, they don't happen, and it's okay. You know. I think what makes it good is just we're living in a landscape that has a narrowing 
amount of media and uh, like less and less media options. And so trying to figure out how to get a book attention is increasingly difficult and requires more creativity. That's all. Like in the pitch? Sure, but no one reads the pitch letter. I think it's who you talk to. I think it's um, if I were to like really get down to it. Damn, I think I'm it's it's. Um, I just don't know if it would work. So I quit ten years ago. So yeah. I don't know if this is really accurate. So like my recommendation would be to look at the masthead of a magazine and try to contact people who aren't just the book's editor. I think it's in how you pitch people. Um, know the names of the sections. You know, don't just say this would be perfect for Vogue, but you know. Yeah. Because it means nothing. <laughs> um, and I think it's just that sort of passion for figuring out where that book could go. It's like a video game if you do it well and you just try to rack up different hits for this book. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason I'm asking about this, too, is it, on the w one hand, book publishing, like I have enough friends that have gone through it now that like it just it seems so impossible to predict what's going to work outside mm -hmm. of the like incredibly obvious things that have to work. So, the, like, how the levers get pulled, I don't understand very well. Well, we have such an allergy as just a culture to things that are being shoved down our throat, which it, it didn't actually used to be quite so bad. Like, you know, you could have a book be the lead title of a publishing house that's on the cover of a catalog. And, you know, those sort of markers of importance, the first printing, you know, the advance, all that stuff, I think used to mean more. And now everyone's just so dubious of being spoon-fed anything that you can even see it in you know what the times chooses to cover mm -hmm. you know i think that there are some daily reviewers and even some reviewers within the tbr who probably get off a little on you know putting a publication from gray wolf or tin house or some of these sort of venerable but much smaller presses in their pages over the big giant title from simon and schuster <laughs> Hey, it's Max. I'm going to uh, put Sloan on hold for just a second, let you know about some people that are sponsoring the show this week, making it possible for us to do the long-form podcast. First up is uh, The Great Courses Plus. And for so many of us, school was about learning practical, marketable skills. But deep down, you still love learning. You still love exploring fascinating stories, painting, playing music, indulging your brain without it being tied to money or responsibility. The Great Courses Plus is uh, is an app that's just there to indulge that specific kind of curiosity, which maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe you lost it a little bit. You can find it again with The Great Courses Plus. It's a service that offers a huge library of audio and visual courses on just about any topic you can imagine, all delivered by experts who present the material in a way that's fun and fascinating. Everything from Egyptian hieroglyphics to human personality, screenwriting, baking, really, it's like the entire gamut. And you can listen to it. You don't have to watch. You can listen on your own time. Uh, you can learn on any device completely on your own schedule. And I have found that it's really nice to listen to the lectures. Sometimes I listen to them uh, on my way home. They've got some ones about parenting, like uh, how to help your kid not be a total psychopath. That's not the name of the course, but that's how I interpret it. And I listen to it on my way home before I see the kid. And then I've got some tools to... Uh, help him not be a psychopath. There's all kinds of things on The Great Courses Plus. You will learn and you won't feel like there's homework or it's another thing on your to-do list. It's all about just indulging your brain. Go indulge your brain. Make The Great Courses Plus your go-to for lifelong learning. For a limited time, they're offering our listeners a full free month 
of unlimited access to their entire library. But to get that special offer, you got to sign up using our special URL. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And thanks also to our friends at Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Maybe you go learn something on the great courses and then you want to share what you've learned, build a website, do it with Squarespace. It's also great if you're starting a new business, you need to showcase your work, publish content, sell products. Really, they have templates and sites for any need that you might have. It's the tool for you. And these templates they got, they're gorgeous. Created by world-class designers, the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can really make a beautiful website all by yourself and you don't need to know any code at all. They've got powerful e-commerce functionality. You can sell anything, analytics, you know who's coming. It's all optimized for mobile right out of the box. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever really. If you want a website, but you don't know how to code, Squarespace is your answer. They got 24 seven award-winning customer support. They empower millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. Now it's your turn. Head to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash longform offer code longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Sloan. I mean, I think part of it also is... um, I, we you know we get pitched all the time. I'm sure. And the, I'd say like ninety something percent of the pitches are like basically saying it would be really good for me if you did this. Which, right. Which does not seem like an effective strategy to me. Like right. there's like a. How do they say that? The same. It's the version of what you're saying, right? It's just like it's some sort of like form thing that's obviously been sent to a lot of places. Mm-hmm. It has like no context at all for the kinds of things that like I like to talk about <laughs> and it's basically like um, here's why this would be great for me if, if, if you were to do this <laughs> like I, I'm showing this book be great if yeah. uh, be great if I get some pressure on this book I think it's just that it takes the amount of time it takes to personalize all those letters and do all those things um, is it really will keep you at the office until yeah. 10 30 or 11 at night and then you get back in at nine it really is crazy i mean i remember once doing a mailing for um black lizard which is an imprint within vintage or was that did a lot of crime and there was a an anthology of like the best of like these sort of noir stories from the 40s and 50s and i wrapped all these galleys in black wrapping paper because I thought that would be a good idea. And like once I commit to it, I just sort of had to do them all. Even though I realized in retrospect, there's no way anyone would know that anyone else's galleys were wrapped. But I stayed forever getting all these paper cuts, you know, wrapping things in black wrapping paper just to try to get people's attention. But I'm also committed like that. Like I'll, like every time I sign a copy of I Was Told There'd Be Cake, I draw cake in it and there's not a copy that doesn't have that really <laughs> and it takes forever <laughs> did that like uh just come to you or is that a plan no it just came to me the first time i did it and then i just kept doing it i don't know why no one's gonna mo- i mean now that i've said it out loud <laughs> it's monodormal yeah now you really have to do right. it. right yeah or, or you can just do like one that doesn't have it and then that's like or a stamp a- murakami does this thing where he has like a, he does a stamp he does a japanese character he's a like build a diorama on stage kind of guy you know yeah it's crazy we should have him on the show sometime. Yeah, we once, should. once you see someone build a diorama. <laughs> All right, I don't want to get into the too much into the weeds of this stuff. I just 
I was hoping you could No, I wish I remembered more to give you the secret sauce. And I honestly, because I, if I remembered more, I would tell my own current publicists to do it. Well, I guess that's my last question on this uh, publicist sure, section yeah. of things, which is like uh, now being in the other seat, is it like, a, is it a weird experience? Or are you kind of like, ah, just like, I'll just drive the fucking car. <laughs> <laughs> it's different because it's this sort of combination um, where you know what's possible you know, none of my publicists will ever hear the words, you know, have you sent it to the Today Show? What about Terry Gross? Right. <laughs> <laughs> to which every publicist in the world should have sort of carte blanche to just be like, what about her and flick you in the head? Um, but <laughs> so I'm not going to ask something idiotic like that. But I will know, you know, there's a standard author form where, you, you know, one of the questions is, do you have any contacts in the media? You know, do you have any bookseller contacts? And yeah, of course, I'm going to have, you know, a stapled sheet that says C subsection <laughs> right. A, but it doesn't mean that they're going to cover my book. And then in fact, I would say that my, at first it was the local girl makes good thing. And it was kind of a, a neat story that I had come from inside the house, as it were. But then it sort of started to frankly work against me a little bit because nobody wants to look like they're covering their friends. Mm-hmm. And because... I was friendly for a living with every publication in America. It can actually be a real problem. Has that like come out the other side now? Are you like... I think maybe the next book, it'll come out the other side. It takes a while. This one still felt like you were in it a little bit? A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's also like there's less and less review coverage, um, but it's more interviews and stuff like that. But it's also... It's not a, I don't wake up in the middle of the night punching my fist in the air over this thinking, you know, like, damn you, Daily TBR, where are you? Um, but I I clock it. What, do you wake up in the middle of the night shaking your fist about? Oh, um, maybe like I wish, maybe Robert De Niro and Albert Brooks and their careers. I just wanted, I want, <laughs> I want the former to do more drama again and the latter to do more comedy. Okay. Yeah, that's it's what very, I get upset it's, about. It's a very solid and specific answer. I know. That's like the answer of someone who does not have children, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's the answer yeah. of somebody was, who doesn't wake up being like, my kid's going to get kidnapped or run over. <laughs> I, will, I will say that was a, that was a uh, there's a degree of sort of mental space in that answer, which I find very appealing <laughs> and, and foreign. <laughs> and foreign, right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's the it's anxiety everyone has. I mean, at this point, it's also the anxiety of just... Um, being in the delightful position of knowing people are going to pay attention to you and then the second realization of knowing that you therefore have to um, that people are going to pay attention to you yeah and so the next thing you do should be good uh well let's talk about the things that you do okay <laughs> let's talk about let's, let's, <laughs> that i've done in the past 10 years <laughs> yeah let's talk about uh recent times great <laughs> um i'm trying to figure out where to start I, maybe we should start at the end a little bit okay um I just finished the new one, the new collection. Look Alive Out There. Yeah, Look Alive. The title of the book is Look Alive Out There. And I, I wondered what, if anything, felt different to you about this last uh, collection compared to the first two. In the writing of it? Yeah, or like what you were trying to do um, or what you were interested in. I think that it feels like a balance to me between the first and the second a little bit, like a, a third bear, I guess. <laughs> Um, or mixtape or something like that. And now I'm just like reaching for analogies. Uh, but in the fact that it's the same kind of tone, I think that I've always had a little less concerned with like jokes per square inch, mm-hmm. which actually I think makes it funnier. 
And then just as I go on, I like to take sort of objectively unfunny things and try to make them funny. So like the first book, you know, I make a cookie for my first boss in the shape of her head and someone like poops on my floor. And these things are these things are funny things. <laughs> and then the second one, though, uh, still has some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe uh, hairless, scatological. But, you know, I also see a baby bear get hit by a truck in Alaska, which is not funny in itself, but everyone's reaction to it was kind of funny, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so you take these, you know, increasingly sort of... Um, either meatier or darker things or just sort of bigger things. Um, and so uh, there's one that was about my teenage neighbors. And maybe if like earlier, it would have possibly just been a noise complaint essay. Mm-hmm. And now it's really about aging and youth and how I kept waiting for them to shut up by growing up. And, you know, they were never going to catch up with me. And I couldn't wait for them <laughs> because of time and space. Um, and it's really about that or about, um, you know, fertility and the pressure to freeze your eggs or the pressure to have children and and you know that's in there too or you know the gossip girl essay is really about identity so things become sort of larger but with the same tone and i think i mean i like this one but don't i mean i often like what i've done the most recently the best i think that's sort of human you know i mean there are some greatest hits from the past where i think you know what I really knocked that one out of the park, but they're few and far between. It's really, it's really what I've done most recently. Do you feel like super in touch with that stuff? Like, do you go back and read it? No, I don't. It seems like a terrifying exercise. Well, also it's sort of like, um, just to add to, I'll give you some terrifying imagery to go with the exercise. It's, is it would be like shoving yourself back into the womb, you know? I mean, <laughs> I just, you already <laughs> came out and it would almost be like, or more um, in, a, in a more polite image, uh, sort of like an Uncanny Valley thing where it sort of looks like you and it's sort of you, but it's you from, I mean, I wrote, I was told there'd be cake. It took a while because there were some publishing snafus. So I wrote it when I was 27. There were publishing snafus? There were some snafus. Really? Yeah. Pub- publicist? No. <laughs> it was, um, I mean, I think now it can be told. Yeah, tell Do it. it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um so I had an editor at HarperCollins who was going to publish the first book. And that came about after I had had pieces that were in the Village Voice that had been linked to on Gawker that had gone slightly viral or, you know, wouldn't be considered viral now. <laughs> Very They're like quaint viral. Yeah, like a contained adorable little rash, <laughs> you know. Um and so I put together this book proposal and they bought it and I was thrilled because I had a novel under the table, but I thought, you know, meanwhile, this is great. And I don't mean to sound it, make it sound like the wild, wild west for essays, but it wasn't like the common practice of publishing as it is now, personal essays specifically and specifically by women. It was really dominated by David Rykoff, David Sedaris, Bill Bryson, people like that. Um Hodgman, Klosterman, I'm just going to keep naming them, but (laughs) you get the idea. But what happened was, is they, I think I was working or I wanted to work much more in the vein of Sedaris and Joseph Mitchell and Dorothy Parker, and these people are my heroes. And they wanted to put me in, they were revamping Atria, which I think is still a romance imprint of HarperCollins. Okay. I don't know what happened with it, but they wanted to put me in a different imprint, which it's weird because contracts that generally does not happen in book publishing. Yeah. But it so thoroughly does not happen that contracts usually don't make allowances for it. They can do that. And all of a sudden I'm getting all these notes saying maybe you could do a box of tips at the 
tail end of all your essays saying, you know, should you find yourself in this situation, this is what you should do. You're like, uh, can you just like romance it up? Romance it up. And I just got scared at first that the galleys were going to have, you know, a, a glitter martini glass with like a shoe in lieu of an olive kind of thing. <laughs> it just says like party girl and right, exactly, exactly. There's literally a martini glass in my. That's his party girl. That's his party girl. I'll show it to you. Well, show. but you know, there's a way to do that. Ironically, this is ironic. Yeah, <laughs> way to do that. It's not the cover of a book. Yeah, or there's a way. Like there's like a Marilyn Minter kind of way to do that, <laughs> and then there's the way that I was really scared about, which is sort of cartoonish. And then yeah. I got um, a next <laughs> level fear, which is that they weren't going to make galleys at all, that it was just going to be this sort of straight to DVD publication. And then the edits I got from my editor, who no longer works at that company. <laughs> You know, you want to connect with somebody when you write these personal essays, uh, and that's the point of them. But you also don't want their exact story back when you need edits. So, you know, okay, well, when this happened to me, and it got pretty bad, and I realized how bad it was getting. This is during, like, the Judith Regan, OJ sort of debacle. And I realized that I needed to pull the book. And so... Wow. <laughs> I know. And so I met with Sean McDonald, who's been my editor and is now at FSG, but he was at Riverhead at the time. And I talked to him about it and I had talked to other people about it too. And he said, you know, I can't bid on, I can't even look at a manuscript that's under <laughs> contract with someone else. That's crazy. Um, you're just going to have to pull it. That's when he really said that. And I remember walking from Old Town Bar home to the Upper West Side. And like by the time I got home, I thought, would I rather have it in a drawer and tell all my friends and family I don't have this book coming out? And the answer was yes. And so I pulled it, and then HarperCollins sued me. What was the conversation like? <laughs> I'm you telling you it? this story. It's quite elaborate, but it just occurred to me that I've never really told this story before. <laughs> what, uh, what was the conversation like when you pulled it? Like, do you remember how that felt? To, to pull it? To pull it? Scary, because I didn't know if anyone was going to publish it. It was very scary. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I'd gotten so little money for it. Uh, so therefore, to have to give money back on top of that money um, kept me in ramen noodles for a while. And then, yeah, but River had bought it. For... Wait, but then they sued you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of glossing over that part. But then they, yeah, I, I can't remember the number, but it was a lot. I think, you know, we're dealing with, let's say, an advance that was around... I don't know, $15,000. And I think that they then wanted an additional eight back. I'm trying to remember the details of it. And I think there was a negotiation, but I paid them. You paid them on, like, on over, over the 15 mm -hmm. to get your book back? Yes. Because they were going to put glitter on it. I think it's it. an ego thing. I think what happened is, you know, I had just gotten a blurb from like Jonathan Lethem. And I think I, I'm always sort of dubious of when you get to be an author of a certain sort of stage and you start thinking you're not good enough for certain things or you're above certain things and it's not healthy. But um, I wasn't, at a, I just genuinely thought like, you're gonna be a bad babysitter for my child. Yeah. And I gotta, I gotta go. Um, otherwise my child's gonna end up smelling like a baby prostitute. <laughs> so I have to go, <laughs> you know? And I, and I did and I, um, so I'm and so, then I'm so glad you it. didn't go down the baby prostitute line. Me too. But what's funny about it is that the narrative, again, is sort of like that you were talking before about this seems like a, a kind of like lore or fairy tale. Like, oh, it's so easy. I worked in book publishing. And I'm like, oh, little do you guys know. <laughs> little do you guys know. Not easy. Almost ended up with the baby prostitute. Yes. And had to pay a bunch of money to get, to wow, get that's out of the intense. brothel. Why, yeah. You have never told that before? I don't think so. I remember being so 
angry because it was during the OJ scandal and the, you know, the If I Did It book that I just kept thinking, does your legal department not have bigger fish to fry (laughs) than me? (laughs) But I think it's, you know, at the same time, you know, it's not about HarperCollins as a house. It's It's packed with great editors. And what's worse and what made the whole thing more heartbreaking is that I worked there before I worked for Vintage and after I worked for a literary agent. I worked for HarperCollins, and I felt like a little bit that these were my people. So there was a sense of yeah, that does of really, hurt. That yeah. really does uh, does like pop the balloon of the uh, mm-hmm. fairy tale story. Yeah, but also it sounds like part of it is about having a real sense of who you want to be as a writer. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and I'm I'm sure everyone has this. Where you know, or not everyone, but I think a lot of people in any kind of creative field, you do something that sort of feels only somewhat out on the limb you know it feels like oh I don't really care about it that much and then once it grows or when other people start caring about it or when you've invested enough time or creativity in it you you suddenly care a lot and this is why book contracts exist on the off chance that you care a lot (laughs) you know (laughs) you know at first you're like oh it'd be so great if anyone published my book if my byline appeared anywhere if anyone made a movie or option this or anything it'd be just a dream and then you get there and you're like this could potentially be very bad if I don't protect myself. Yeah. Did the did the last book feel at all more um, personal to you? The last book definitely. Well, it felt more personal. It felt a little different too because there's two um, sort of more journalistic interview style essays in the book. One I interview um, my uncle. Well, he's my mother's cousin. We call him Uncle Johnny, who was a very big, very prominent is is easier than big porn star in the 70s. (laughs) And another one where I interview a guy who is this sort of dark web um, domain Domain slinger. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, Who took my domain and I actually for the New York Times Magazine went to London to interview him. But beyond that, I think that I've grown to have more faith in the details of my personal life and how they would potentially relate to people. So a good example of that is like the last essay in this book, which is a fairly giant tome about egg freezing, <laughs> but in a funny way. <laughs> funny yeah, I mean, I mean, I I think that, and again, it's almost like the doormat story with deja vu frontwards and backwards. There's usually sort of one moment that will often throw things into a sharp relief, even an incredibly long essay like that one, yeah. where I remember looking at the website for the fertility clinic and it had a picture of this young couple in a park with a golden retriever and underneath it said let us help you meet your family goals and I thought yeah I want to give birth to a puppy <laughs> sounds dope <laughs> you know got a new goal and I kind of knew you know and that's yeah. and that's the thing so I think they're both more personal and a little more embracing of um honestly being comedic writing because I think that that label was really scary to me for a long time because there's so much pressure in it. Is there a relationship between it being more personal and the jokes per square inch? Yeah, there's less. It's But it's a more vulnerable state to understand that you'll get the laughs without the jokes, but just by being your hapless self. <laughs> you don't actually have to try that hard to make people laugh at you. It comes naturally to them. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's sort of a fun realization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, that was how it read to me a little bit. It was just like there were fewer, like, go for it laugh lines, kind right. of, and a little bit more 
of you. But still, I mean, listen, uh, egg freezing, fucking hilarious. Thank you. See, I'm glad that even men can relate. Well, because ultimately it's a medical story, and I think medical stuff is really fascinating. Like, ultimately it's a story, you know, like if you told me you broke your arm and told me exactly how and how many places, I couldn't get enough of it. I find that stuff so interesting. Why? Um, I don't know, human fallibility, gross-out stuff, uh, having an inner 13-year-old child who's just not inner enough. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think maybe it's also... um, the definance of a medical problem. You know, I traffic so much in neuroses and, and, you know, sort of vague opinions that become sort of sharpened in my mind or etiquette. And then there's a couple of essays in this book that, you know, one being one of them and another one about a weird inner ear disease. And I find interactions with doctors to there's be a, incredibly funny. There's a moment in the, in the inner ear one where you're describing the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so there's this moment that basically, like, uh, it's uh, much more eloquently written than this, but basically it's actually like a pretty serious condition. Like you thought maybe it was something relatively minor and then it's like actually a pretty serious thing. And the the way that you write that response is basically just like, what the fuck is essentially how I read it. <laughs> As a, Again, much more eloquent version of that. But like the moment where you're slightly like disassociated from this uh, right. very serious diagnosis that you've gotten and you're in this place where like you're you're not fully that person who's uh, quite that sick, right. but you're not also the person you were when you like walked in the room, you know? Yes. It's it's a weird thing to have a strange little disease, and it is a little disease. It's fine. It's called Meniere's. It, it um, gives you vertigo. I have to watch my salt intake. Um, Doesn't sound fun. It's not fun when it happens, but it's actually not a problem at all when it's not happening. So, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, but it's more, um, you know, that feeling of feeling like, I had been sort of fostering a child, you know, before you find out you're diagnosed with something, you just have these symptoms and that's sort of like the fostering stage. And then you find out, no, 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 you're going to have this for life. And then it feels like a forced adoption where you're like, this isn't my child. Wait, what? This stays in my house forever and (laughs) eats all my food? Are you kidding me? (laughs) I have plans. It's a terrible deal. (laughs) This is a terrible deal. (laughs) And and so there are some moments of, you know, true shock. But also it's a funny thing to have vertigo. I mean, vertigo, it's not funny to experience it, but it's an objectively ridiculous thing to have to (laughs) spin around and fall down. I mean, mean, maybe in a sort of more like black and white footage of like, you know, Charlie Chaplin way, but it's. That's what's sort of strange about it. I don't know. I guess I just always like with the essays and with stories like that, the texture of talking to some doctor who is generally humorless and who I asked at some point, you know, there was construction in his office one point when I was on the phone with my ear, nose and throat doctor. I said, what is that? And he said, oh, there's construction. I don't even hear it anymore. And I'm like, okay. Like you're just saying things. You're just feeding me now (laughs) on purpose. Yeah. When you're going through your life, how tuned in are you to, like, um, material? Like, how much are you looking for the next story? And do you think that there's any, to like, to any extent you are, like, uh, making them happen? Oof. Um, probably. I think I should do it more than I do. I mean, the assumption is, is that I do it all the time or, you know, from the That's outside. That's not my, I mean, I, I'm just asking a question. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're like, don't put words in my mouth. Yeah. Um, I, I think I need to do it more than I do. 
need to create the action more than you do or be just like just more be more attuned. aware yeah. you would think that i mean I, it's not like i don't i think about things for a living you know but at the same time i um i don't fling myself down a dark alley hoping to get an essay out of it i mean i do enjoy a dark alley but i also enjoy complaining every single moment that i'm in that dark alley um but i doesn't i think it would make me frankly insufferable to be around if i was just sort of you know, milking all my friends for odd stories or, you know, turning them into characters or insisting that we do ridiculous things together or even doing ridiculous things by myself. So, no, I don't actually seek it out, really. The danger, though, of course, I just realized of that of that answer is a little bit like, oh, this old thing. <laughs> but um, maybe it just does happen to me or maybe it's just how I, I see the world. You know, there's an essay in the in this last book where I had an assignment for a farm magazine. Um, they do this one-page spin yeah, the globe Ecuador. feature. Yeah, I got Ecuador, and I had no time to plan. And um, which is the point of the piece? You have like twenty-four hours. And, I love that thing. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, they they made me get all these vaccinations beforehand because they do tell you that. Um, I'm like, where am I going? Um, but I went and I did the piece um, where. I basically like tried to crash the Ecuadorian Oscars because the woman gave me a pamphlet on the street in Quito. And I wrote, you know, it's a thousand words, you know, a little ditty about um, that experience. And then I wrote it almost a, a chunk of it that night. And then I had time left in Ecuador in Quito. And I had a friend who said, you should climb Cotopaxi. And I, I could not be bothered to Google an image of Cotopaxi, which is distinctly covered in ice and very, very tall. Um, I think it's 19,000 feet. And I thought, well, I have leggings. I'll go up this. This is fine. And so it ended up being this thing where I almost, I mean, I threw up on a glacier. It was a mess. And it was that association with that trip. And it's these two very different pieces came out of it. But I didn't go thinking, I thought I was going for the thousand word piece and got a 12,000 word piece out of it. Right. And I mean, when you were like, uh, for example, like puking on the glacier, mm. where you're like, oh, this, this is going to be good. <laughs> no. I, I, I think that's part of what I'm asking is like, right. there's one thing that's like, oh, I uh, I'm going to stand up this mountain and then uh, walk over it because it'll be good. Another is like, when these funny or somewhat awful things are happening, is there some part of your brain that's like, this, this is going to work out. There's, yeah, there is like a, a narrative lizard brain <laughs> um, that thinks this will work out, but it depends on what the situation is. For that one, um, that's a medical thing, and I had a fever of about, you know, 103 and was hallucinating, so I don't think I thought much, except for this very sort of plotting, how do I get from point A to point B and get through this, and like, it's so cold and I have to go to the bathroom, how do I negotiate getting down from this you know, bunk. So that's not that I wasn't thinking about it. But, you know, the second I walk off that mountain and, you know, the altitude sickness dissipates. Yeah, I, I do. The idea of writing about it creeps in because I mean, if if there's a benefit to this is that there's, you know, no such thing as a totally horrible experience anymore. You either write about it or things sort of pass without incident. I mean, having said that, I did a piece for Vogue a couple months ago where they sent me on a sort of David Foster Wallace Redux cruise. Uh, it was a beauty, or it had a beauty element to it. And, you know, that's, again, that's a limited word count that I had, and I managed to fit. Um, I was very impressed with them for letting me put 
a fair amount of my anger <laughs> and, and horrification at this experience um, and realizing that as uh, brilliant as David Foster Wallace is and that piece is an absolute masterpiece. I feel like people copy the nut graph of that <laughs> all the time. Um, I'm like, oh my gosh, from a sort of thematic or emotional standpoint, you phoned it in, buddy. This is much worse. This is so much worse than the supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. <laughs> you stayed in your room a lot if you reread that piece. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is pretty rough. And so, but that I'm like struggling with because I would love to turn it into the same thing, the keto paradigm of, of a larger piece, but I'm still so blindingly upset by it that to go back and live in it and go through all my notes and go through all my photos to produce this essay i don't i'm like not ready yet. <laughs> i really hated it do you think that you uh you will be yeah i think eventually things do calcify also on their own where yeah. you know you'll see what you naturally remember and that's usually trying to tell you something how would you explain if there is one what the gap is between like sloan in this book i just read and uh actual sloan well, I think the gap is probably pretty apparent from a radio interview in which I'm much less articulate than I am on the page. Well, aside from like editing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I think that there's not much except for, I think I'm a little more curmudgeonly in print and a little more, um, I think I'm nicer in person, probably. I mean, I, I only say that from sort of empirical evidence of, you know, I just went on book tour for Look Alive out there and having, you know, librarians or lecture people or, or um, bookstore owners, I can tell. And sometimes they've even said as much that they're a little pleasantly surprised because they think I think they thought I was going to be more caustic or more New Yorky or something like that. And I wouldn't have actually guessed there was a huge difference between me and, and what's on the page. But that feedback has led me to believe <laughs> these essays are a touch um, bitchier. <laughs> okay. and, yeah. Um, I'm gonna ask you one more personal essay question, and then sure. I, I'll let you go in a sec. Um, <laughs> uh, I wonder what your thoughts are. I feel like there was this uh, moment, like particularly around like Sidaris, and then personal essays in general. It's particularly like things about uh, memoir and people going back in time, and Twitter was all like uh, thinking about the personal essay for a moment there, and and whether they're um, real. Oh right, uh huh, uh-huh, that like uh, whole thing, and. I wonder where that sort of falls for you. Like there's all this stuff in the book. And a lot of your essays are conversations that are years and years old and very specific things. And, and I wonder what your assumptions are about what assumptions the reader is making. Oh, wow. Um, well, what's weird is that they, I assume that the reader thinks that very detailed dialogue is fabricated for the benefit of the larger truth, right? That's not really true. The dialogue is actually pretty much spot on. <laughs> because these are essays, I'm not being assigned them. You know, I mean, if someone told me to write an essay about what happened yesterday, I absolutely would not be able to do it. I couldn't even tell you what I wore yesterday. You know, these exist because often a piece of dialogue has lodged in my brain for very good reason. Um, you know, I have a smaller essay in this book about me deciding that I was going to be a therapist for my fellow fourth graders and sitting on a rock in the corner having, you know, never seen the Peanuts comic strip um, and giving advice to them. And the boy I had a crush on came up to me and he said, yeah, I have a problem. And I was so excited to, you know, be his sort of confidant. And he said, 
yeah, there's this really annoying girl giving advice on a rock. And that is exactly what he said, I can assure you, because I've carried it with me (laughs) for the rest of the time until today in this interview. (laughs) So that's quite accurate. But I get a little sort of mad at people who make things up whole cloth. I mean, I... I will allow, I think I have this sort of quiet, unnamed percentage in my head as a reader when I read David Sedaris, and it vacillates from essay to essay, you know, what seems, but but that's not the point of reading him, I think. And I think there's a trust there where, like, he has to trust that, and you can replace me in this scenario, it's just easier to talk about somebody else, he has to trust that a reader knows a little bit of it is fudged or BS or um, honestly much more innocent than that and probably just hyperbolic. But then they also have to trust that he wouldn't pick up a pen and do this if he was just going to make stuff up. What's the point? So somewhere in there lies the truth. But for me, it's pretty close to the hole, to use a, a golf analogy I have no right to because I don't <laughs> play golf. But it's pretty. Cl- it's as close as I can make it. To the truth. Yeah. I mean, help me understand that last thing just a little bit. Like, um, if part of this is about like the fallibility of memory, like how can you know how, uh, how do you know where the hole is? Right. I mean, this is what's tricky. You know, what you get with memoir instead of essays is, you know, my story, right? Or my memory is memoir. And with essays, you don't get that. It's allegedly held to more of a sort of standard of truth. These aren't my impressions of, you know growing up and, and you know it's not the same thing as you know Mary Carr or Tobias Wolf that kind of thing but what you get in exchange for that standard though is the fact that they end they end all the time you know and so 16 times I think in this last book <laughs> one might say and so I can only do so much damage to people you know what I mean it's like a drive-by yeah of like possibly messing up my memory of that one thing i'm not going to write running with scissors where there's like a family out there somewhere who's so excited to buy this book because oh that kid we housed that summer (laughs) wrote a book how lovely you know and turns out not so lovely yeah so i feel like there's not i lost my train of thought basically just like sorry um, (laughs) i'll I'll, I'll complete your thought basically (laughs) uh what, what i think you're saying is like the the form itself lowers the stakes of that particular like minefield yeah you don't have to there's no way to lie in a sustained manner in an essay collection yeah i mean you shouldn't do it anyway but i think it would actually be hard to try having said that i make it sound like i have a much more loosey goosey attitude than i do i just know what I come for in other people's writing and I feel like mine is really close also mine's not there's not a lot of fact checking that goes on in mine mine's you know impressions mm-hmm. so what do you think people come for I have no idea come on. Do you, no really come honestly on. I will tell you I was I did an interview the village voice did an interview with David Sarris and I and we sat across from each other and they asked us both the same question. And then I went first and they said, what do you think your book's about? And I did this whole song and dance about it. And it's it's all true, but it's also sort of hard to pin down because there are essays and it's not one grand sweeping theme. You know, it's not like these are essays about music. These are essays about politics. It's not like that. And I tried to answer the question as best as I could. And then they asked David the same question. And he said, I don't think that's for me to say. And I was like, I'm going to kill you. 
<laughs> is that what you get when you get to be David Sedaris? Is I don't think that's for me to say. <laughs> and it's charming. <laughs> but it's really, I think what people come for, I always like to say in a sort of non-specific way, like their other old man in the Muppet show. <laughs> you know, they come for um, that stuck in the middle with you feeling of that if they had been there with me, they would think the same things. And that if I was with them in their sort of most ludicrous moments, I would think the same things or, or put it well. Um, and there's sort of a comfort in that. Yeah. That's interesting. The, the danger of what I just said, of course, is that like the highest compliment is, oh, it's like hanging out with your best friend. I don't totally want it to be that. I do want to challenge people. I do want people to think slightly differently about you know, topic X once they leave the essay. But I, I do ultimately feel like it should be an enjoyable experience. Yeah. I mean, um, they're really entertaining. I mean, thank you. I mean, I feel, you know, I saw, you know, Jim Crace's. No. He's this great British author. Um, he's written like nine novels. He retired the same time as, uh, I think, really the same day as Philip Roth retired, which is a Don't huge break. freaking mistake. <laughs> uh, but, I saw him speak when he was still in action um, at the National Arts Club once, and there were a lot of aspiring writers in the audience, and I think they were asking about craft and, and imagery and all this stuff, and he said this thing that sounded so negative at the time, but I th I've taken with me as such a practical piece of advice, where he said, you know, never forget that you are a volunteer as a writer, and it is therefore your duty to entertain people, and you know, it doesn't you can entertain them by making them cry. You can entertain them by challenging them, but you have to entertain people. And, you know, a four-page description of an oak tree just because you can, not entertaining. And he's like, there is a hierarchy to life, you know? There's a doctor and a carpenter and a chef and a writer and they're on a desert island. Like, who gets eaten? He didn't say this. This part's me. <laughs> I get eaten, <laughs> you know? I mean, And so it wasn't like a huge boon for the arts the way he was talking about you know writing and the impetus to create but that idea is that never forget that you're a volunteer i think is is very important and i always carry it with me when i when i write it's hmm. a nice idea yeah no one i mean i mean but the negative the sort of negative Im image of that is no one needs you <laughs> which can be paralyzing if you go too far into it right well, you don't seem very in touch with like the paralyzing side of that going though I'm in touch with it based on topic. I mean, if I was too in touch with it, I'm, so I'm working on a novel now, and if I was too in touch with thinking, you know, I have quite consciously, both in my fiction and nonfiction, avoided Trump and avoided a lot about the the sort of political landscape and <laughs> the fact that we're all going to die from either carbon emissions or nuclear warfare. I got to tell you, I... Uh... <laughs> That was very present for me reading the book. Really? Yeah. What? That we're gonna die? <laughs> oh, this just took a turn for the worse. <laughs> uh, no, how free it was, how absent the very obvious truth that we're all gonna die. <laughs> what was from the kind of like world of the book? It was. Uh, it was nice. It's like a vacation. <laughs> Thanks. Well, thank you. Because I mean, the thing is, what's weird is like now. Because, you know, the more extreme things get in reality, the more extreme escapism has to be, you know, it's like Game of Thrones or bust. But in reality, I think that part of what I'm trying to do with this book or in anything I write is to 
actually it is a form of escapism, I guess, because I'm trying to give you permission to be mad about little things. Yeah. Like just because there's all this, you know, someone still slid their hand down the subway pole and touched you, you know, or somebody bumped into you or like there's still these like sort of minor indignities and infractions that occur consistently. And I think there is some sort of robbing if you tell yourself, well, I'm not going to be mad about this because of the political landscape that we're in. But I feel like in in my daily life, like the caveat, like this is a first world problem or like this is preposterous to complain about, but is like a pretty standard thing. But it's dangerous. So I have a friend who will remain nameless who published a book of essays a while ago and she, I think she was a little uneasy with the topic, which was not particularly rarefied. It just wasn't particularly relevant, I guess, or or what's deemed socially or Twitter level relevant. And in that way, it was more evergreen. And you could say it was therefore better, but I don't think she did that. And in her writing, she would say, you know, I know it's not Syria, but I know this isn't, you know, World War Three, but. And I remember reading a draft and taking, you know, not all of them, but a bunch of them out. Because I'm like, first of all, no one in their right mind is coming to you for Syria information. <laughs> you know, it's not. That's their fault. This is ridiculous. I was like, second of all, you're hemming and hawing. And like part of the, the humor and the impact is to say, you know, that real estate agent is the worst person to have ever lived. Right. And everybody is aware that Hitler also happened. <laughs> Nobody is questioning it. It's part of the style. And it, it just sort of I felt like she had been gotten to by the Internet, that they had like nibbled at her too much and she was really insecure. And I'm not, you know, impervious to it especially when it comes to the narrative nonfiction. But with fiction, I'm pretty, I'm like kind of impervious to the world around me a little bit, which makes it sound like there's not going to be any connective tissue when people read it. It's not very selling, but it's it's more that I just don't feel like I have to respond to this exact moment. How do you feel like um, it nibbles in the nonfiction and not in the fiction? Like how, how does that manifest in nonfiction? I just feel like I know, it, you know, I, I'm a person who reads their reviews. And I can feel, um, I can feel myself as a white urban woman, Jewish, but who really cares? You know, I, I can feel that. And I think that the idea of like, poor me, what was the little white urban girl in her West Village apartment? I think I have to be extremely careful with that. And not just because of other people's reactions, but because of how I operate in the world. I'm not a jerk. (laughs) You know what I mean? I know. I know my experience has its limits and that other people's experiences should also have room to breathe. And therefore, I feel like the standard for me to write certain kinds of nonfiction, it's actually quite healthy thing is even higher. So like my favorite essay from this past book is the one about my rich teenage neighbors. Yeah. But of course I have to live in the nice neighborhood, you know, with all the the tree-lined streets in order to see them. But that's why it was all the more important that I make it about something bigger than them. And that's why I like that essay. And I don't know if I would have been as conscious about it like eight years ago. Okay, I think that makes sense to me. I, I feel like I should ask you very quickly about magazine writing. Okay, yeah. Before we go. Okay. Uh, I just read a bunch of pieces today uh, right before we got here. Uh, like you just went and hung out with Dr. Ruth. I did. And uh, Stormy Daniels. 
uh, yes, the last the three women specifically I interviewed. There's been men, but um, or Laura, Laura Dern, yeah, Stormy Daniels, and Dr. Ruth. And once things come in threes, you either have like a style section article or a funny joke, right? Like a duck, <laughs> a priest, and a nun walk into a bar, and like I can't help but picture all three of these women in the same room together. Um, how how does that magazine work fit into your life? Like, a how do you think about it in relationship to the other stuff you're doing? And and B, do you feel like you sort of from a career or financial or other standpoint need to do it or do you want to i mean we'll start with the easiest like it is nice to get a little check every once in a while um in between books as opposed to having to you know store up you know your advance in your cheeks like it's all the money you're ever gonna get yeah <laughs> and run up a tree with it you know there is something nice to and so i would say that the hit of the byline as well as the little bank account hit are sort of intertwined it's also nice to have that outside constraint of trying to fit your voice without having your voice take away from the voice of the person you're profiling ever. Like I think 90% of the time it's a good idea to have the other person speak as the kicker. You know, it's very rare that you should just say, you know, and then I walked out thinking my thoughts about that person, <laughs> you know. And so it's nice to sort of actually give up that prism for a while, which is so present in my nonfiction mm -hmm. and give it to somebody else. Um, but then also to try to make it seem like I wrote it, you know, with some sort of personality and going back and forth with editors about what stays and what goes. It's reminiscent of a day job and having that human connection. So it's not just the um, person I'm profiling that becomes interesting, but it becomes in the editing, the editing, that process becomes very interesting to me and very sort of, I think it's just a connection with the outside world a little bit. And it keeps you curious because, you know, when you work from home, it can be quite insular. And, you know, I used to get very annoyed when I was, when I had two careers at once and, you know, I thought, oh God, I have to send in this W9 form. I have to do all this stuff for this, you know, magazine while I'm also working with all these authors and I'm also, you know, burning the candle at both ends and staying, you know, at the office so late. And it used to be sort of annoying to me. And now I'm like, I'll go back and forth with an editor forever. I was like, what do you want me to do? It's great. Uh, all right. Here's my last question, which is like, we started talking about like this job you had and when it felt like this might be very far away. And then uh, this moment where you like pull your book from HarperCollins and all these things. Uh, my question, I think, is basically like, do you feel like set now? Are you good? Um, can I answer a long way and a short way? Yeah. I had a friend who was on the subway the other day, and it got stuck. And she was a, a, two guys on the subway, and one of the guys was sort of a homeless guy, but he had a, a satchel with him of, I guess, black spray paint. And he started took it out, started shaking it, which is already tough in close quarters in the subway, and they're trapped. And he was bald, and he spray-painted his entire skull black, like dripping with paint, heinously smelly. And then he also started um, taking his back like a bear against a tree, against the subway pole, which is not very effective, but scratching up and down and moving his spine up and down the subway pole. With subway doors open, everyone floods out. And, you know, she's trying to avoid him, but somehow you know they sort of meet up on the stairs with just sort of the partition of the railing between them 
and they make eye contact. And he looks at her and he goes, you good? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, I guess so. That's the end of the story. Anyway, sorry. Just you said you good and it's all I can think about. Is that, is that person you? No. <laughs> Did you just fictionalize that story? No. In fact, the impulse to make it my own is overwhelming and it is not. It a lot is of, not. I'm just saying there's a lot of specificity in that story. I mean, I, I remembered every detail of it, obviously. Um, I have a good memory. Uh, but no, do I feel secure in my career and like I'm officially this sort of thing that I've created, I guess? Yeah. Almost never. Almost never. On book tour, I do just because of how people respond to you and you can't help but feel that. And it's really lovely. And people come out and they tell you, exactly what your work has meant to them and it's it's really hard to take that level of sincerity to my face it's, it's really hard to know how to respond um i usually end up apologizing for smiling you know i say i'm sorry i'm smiling i'm just really moved and i don't know how to react you know i almost have to like issue a disclaimer um and it's wonderful um i mean book tour is also bizarre and lonely making but it's it's really great and then i think you know, I try to make a note to self to carry that with me when I go a little bit, but it usually doesn't work. Um, but I think it's healthy for it not to work. You know, I think I have enough of knowing that somebody is going to read my next book, that my insecurity is more someone's going to read it. And what if it sucks? Not no one's going to read it. Mm-hmm. So it's just a different brand of insecurity. <laughs> hey, Sloan, thanks for doing this. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me. It's great. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern, our new intern, is Louisa Garbowit. Welcome, Louisa. Our sponsors this week, MailChimp, Pit Writers, Squarespace, and The Great Courses. Thanks to all of them for making it possible for us to make this show. And thanks most of all to Sloan Crosley. Her new collection is called Look Alive Out There. I recommend it. We'll see you next week. <laughs>